Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. The Hellmouth Con. The Hellmouth Convention is back, and it's hosting a spectacular event in the place of all places, Torrance High School, the shooting location for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Join us June 15th, 2024 for one day only. Proceeds benefit the Los Angeles LGBT Center and the Ron Glass Memorial Scholarship. Visit thehellmouth.org for details. SoonerCon 32. Oklahoma City's longest-running premier pop culture convention returns June 21st through 23rd, 2024. Prepare for three days of cosplay, crafts, tabletop gaming, and legendary guests, all in the friendly town of Norman, Oklahoma. To give back to the community, fundraisers and a live charity auction will be held. Visit SoonerCon.com to reserve your membership. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. I'm going to warn you right now, in this upcoming episode, I'm going to bounce all over when it comes to the conversation topic, and that's because today's guest is somebody whom I could speak to for hours on end if time had allowed it. Amy Imhoff is a writer, a science promoter, and a person of great, great value to the Star Trek community. And I am honored to have her on the show. Let's get started right now. On mic today, we have Amy Imhoff. How are you doing this evening? I'm great. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have you here. I've enjoyed following your feed for a while. I've, you're, it's only been a couple of weeks since Trek Talks 3. You had to, did a bang-up job on that. I enjoyed that presentation quite a bit. I'll link Thank to it in the you. show notes. Oh, yes. Thank you. No, it's uh, you, can, you guys can find the... Um... The link to all of the Trek talks uh, through the Trek Geeks YouTube and uh, through the Roddenberry Foundation. Also, they were partners in this one. So we really appreciate Roddenberry and Trek Geeks has been a great partnership for all of us in the community and just good friends of mine. I love everybody over there. It's for sure. We'll put all that in there. It was a great event. What I love about reading your work, because you are the short version, is that you are a heck of a commentator on science and science fiction you are uh, a very talented writer thank you and and you're a great public speaker i've worked on that i appreciate you <laughs> i appreciate you saying that i have now I, I i realized that the trek talks panel was my hundredth panel congratulations thank you thank you um no it's exciting i've been doing them for about 10 years now a little over tw maybe 12 years now 12 years yeah it's 2024 so I have to say at 12 years <laughs> uh, my first one was I think 2012 2013 around there at Star Trek Las Vegas nice well what I love about your work specifically because you can get into science fiction and talking about it and it's really easy to say well hey did you know the Star Trek made the little flip phone communicators it's really easy to talk about that sort of stuff but you have a real talent for looking at what science fiction is saying right now about what's going on right this minute, which is the big picture stuff that a lot of people tend to gloss over. Yeah, I think that um, there is so much happening right now in uh, aerospace and in the space community and also in science fiction and representation um, in front of and behind the camera when it comes to women and diverse voices. Um, I really want to spotlight that in my work and uplift those diverse voices because I've noticed just a, you know, there was a big lack for a long time, you know, Star Trek was run by men. Um, and, you know, mo mo all the franchises are. 
uh, you know, Star Wars and, and everything. Um, but now we have, you know, women who are behind the scenes who are really um, producing and directing and, you know, creating these worlds that we all love so much. And part of creating that is, I think, drawing inspiration from the space program and vice versa. There's people who work in the space program and in private aerospace draw lots of inspiration from Star Trek. And the Star Trek, in turn, just to use one example, ends up basically reinventing itself. It draws its inspiration from what's going on around it. And so it becomes almost this little cycle. It does. Um, there is so much, there's there's so many cool companies that have come up in the last you know, decade or so, especially with the advent of um, the partnership of NASA with SpaceX and Blue Origin. Um, if it weren't for SpaceX, we would not be able to get back and forth to the International Space Station. Um, the Dragon capsule is the only certified human capsule at the moment that can take people up and down. So when they retired the space shuttle program, we really had to rely on this marriage of public aerospace and private aerospace. And I found that to be very fascinating. Um, and then a couple of years ago, uh, I met a fabulous woman, Anara Tabir, and she is very involved in the space industry. She's worked with a number of organizations. And she said, I was expressing frustration at uh, one of my technology clients and, and I was unable to, as a freelancer, I'm sure freelancers in your audience will understand it's hard to get paid on time. Um, and I've been working for them for several months and I had not gotten a paycheck and I was complaining and Anara said, come work for space. <laughs> and I said, yes, I will call you. Do not even have to convince me. Like there's mm -hmm. no convincing. Like I will come work for space. So she put me in touch with um, a, a really cool group of people in the community. Um, there's a think tank called the Overview Effect. Um, the overview effect is coined by Frank White, who is a space philosopher. Um, it's a common shared experience of people who have been to space and seen the earth from space. Um, Shatner talked a little bit about it when he went up with Blue Origin. Uh, it's just kind of a sense of you look down at the earth and you think, look at this fragile thing. It's really not that big. All of the people I know and all of the things I've ever done are contained in this space, but it's fragile. We should protect it. You know, we're, we're poisoning our environment. We're doing a lot of terrible things to planet Earth. And it kind of makes you have this sense of like, we're here. This is where the life is. And then you turn and you look out at space and you're like, there isn't any life that I can see. It's all dark, right? It's all just black, empty space. And it's very, uh, I hear from, from what I've read and from the people that I've spoken to who have been, um, it's a very powerful experience. And I thought that that was a really cool concept for a think tank. Um, and I joined and I met a whole bunch of cool people in the space industry and I'm still working with them. It's wonderful. That sounds amazing. Really I, cool. I, I feel terrible. I don't have better words to describe it, but that <laughs> the whole concept is just lighting my brain on fire. It's so cool, honestly. Um, and we have, you know, a number of the people in the group. Um, Ron Rossano is one of the astronauts who went up with the, one of the Virgin Galactic missions. Um, I don't know if anybody follows uh, any of these cool ladies in space like Kelly Girardi or uh, Emily, um, Emily Calandrelli. Uh, Emily has not been up. Um, she is more of a science communicator and Kelly is more of like an active astronaut. And she's a mom and she's very honest on her social media about, you know, being a role model for her daughter. And I just felt really inspired by these ladies that I keep meeting. And, you know, of course there's fabulous men who are involved in the program as well, but we're always looking towards that diversity and towards seeing ourselves and working with Kate Mulgrew um, I've heard uh, so many people say, I'm an astrophysicist because of Captain Janeway. You know, I'm a captain in the Navy because of Captain Janeway. 
Um, and, you know, they come up to Kate and they're so emotional and, you know, she'll, she'll say to me, oh, everybody's always crying when they meet me. <laughs> and I'm like, well, it's because you're so inspiring to them. Uh, so that's been a real privilege. And I really enjoyed that aspect of my work. And I wanted to do more of that work, hence the, the move to uh, helping with event management and speaker management and, um, you know, social media and other kinds of brand strategy for space. So, I mean, doing the event management and that sort of thing, you get to put together a lot of these think tank events and, and otherwise get these people together in the same room. That has to be pretty gratifying. That is very exciting. Um, I'm more on uh, on staff from from established events. Uh, I've I've become involved with. Uh, so last year, for example, um, I was with uh, the Yuri's Night team. Um, Loretta Whiteside is a Virgin Galactic founder astronaut, and her husband, George Whiteside, was the chief of staff um, for NASA under Obama. And he's currently running for office, actually, in California. And um, they started, Loretta started it, but George George did too. Um, they started Yuri's Night a little over 20 years ago. And it's a celebration of the first human being in space, uh, Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin. And they celebrate it every year in the, you know, beginning, it's like the first, usually the second weekend in April. Um, it's on his birthday is, I think it's, I think his birthday is the 12th or the 14th, something like that. Um, but the uh, the event that I, I volunteered for last year was, well, I did Yuri's Night on both coasts. I did it on the uh, on the LA side under the um, the Space Shuttle Endeavor at the California Science Center. And we brought out 25 Star Trek creatives. I really thought, you know, they could really use that star power that they hadn't had. They they had had some very cool people come in and speak and a few people here and there. Bob Picardo had su um, supported the event for a long time through the Planetary Society. Uh, Bill Nye, of course, being Planetary Society as well. But um, the the community that came together for that event was just you know, private space companies, NASA, we had our, our keynote speaker was uh, NASA astronaut, Dr. Jessica Watkins, um, hopefully going to be one of the first women on the moon. Uh, very, very inspiring individual. And it was um, a total privilege to bring Tawny Newsom in to host her in conversation with um, another uh, black woman trailblazer in space, uh, Dr. Cyan Proctor, who is the first black woman to pilot a spacecraft. Um, so she's She's incredible too, and I want to get her more involved in the Star Trek community. What I really want to do is bring in the real life Starfleet officers with the fictional Starfleet officers and create those conversations. I find it interesting that you get these people here, and you always have the the first instruction, like you just said, that where it's like you you were an inspiration to me. I'm here because of you, and there's a sense of gratitude there that I I think is is crucial to moving to the next step after that to saying okay what can we do here how can we make this better yeah we want to um we I just the the great way of putting it is I've talked with the Trektivism community um you know in the the community that put on the Trek talks um and it's really about creating the Roddenberry future um you can there's a lot of different ways you can do that um you know the, the they talk about uh, the, the, the great quote from Gene Roddenberry that Jonathan Frakes always says, which is um, that everybody has enough to eat and everybody's taken care of and every child can read. Like, it's like a, it's like a very nice, that's, that's like a paraphrasing of the actual quote, but it's, uh, it's kind of the way Roddenberry described Star Trek to Jonathan Frakes when he, when he was first cast. And, um, you know, that sounds like a great world. I think that's a world that we need to live in. And we're not going to get there if we keep being greedy <laughs> and we keep hurting our planet and we keep, um, you know, treating each other poorly in in all areas. But, you know, space, we have a chance to be more. We have a chance to be our best selves in space. 
um, and Loretta Whitesides, who had, who had founded Yuri's Night, also runs an organization called Spacekind, and she does Spacekind training, uh, which is, you know, it's it's an empathetic kind of like, it's it's not a hard sciences type of a thing. It's it's the the people skills that I think a lot of engineers um, and people who work in in those fields are sometimes not as well versed in. You know, I have a lot of friends who are you know graphic designers and and game devs and scientists and and you know sometimes there's that that lack of communication in the workplace and and lack of empathy and lack of like you know really asking a person you know why are you responding this way or you know why is why why are we being not our best self today <laughs> and and i think you know the the kind of training that she offers um really helps people establish that kind of empathy in a way that maybe they haven't gotten that training in their professional lives i'm i come from the humanity side of it so that was a you know i've i've read a lot about psychology and uh you know and i've been in therapy and i think that that's um valuable thing that everybody should go through so it's uh, it's it's very similar to that like if you've been through um, if you've been through therapy, there's some of the elements there about, you know, being a good listener. Um, but she also talks about, um, and Dr. Cyan Proctor also talks about creating a Jedi space, just, equitable, diverse, and inclusive. So I like that. I know we're on a Star Trek podcast, but the Jedi no, no. space is, the Jedi space is a great way to think of it. And it's easy to remember. Hungry Trilobite is about the way all these things make our lives better. So whether you you put your roots in Star Trek, Star Wars, Nintendo, comic books, or just if you just like picking up any book you can find, that's what we're here about, about here. Yeah, that's awesome. And what I, I was trying to think of a way to say this. And, and when you talked about Gene Roddenberry's words to Jonathan Frakes, it kind of started to click there. That when you're talking about, we've got to make sure people have enough to eat. We got to make sure that everybody has an education. Everybody has health care. These things, they're big picture ideas. And I think that's where people who like space shine is that we want to tackle the big picture ideas and people who are in other industries tend to not look at the big picture. They're incentivized to look at the next quarter, the next week. And I think that's the best value space has right now that is pushing us to get into the big picture. How do you feel about that? Um, I think it's it's definitely an accurate statement to some extent. Um, these space companies are mostly for-profit companies, though, so they have to be, you have to play the game, right? In order to be, in order to create those giant leaps, um, you have to play the capitalism game, right? That's why, that's why most big space companies are backed by a billionaire. They just, the money is not necessarily there in, in private aerospace unless you are working with, with a, an alternative source of funding. And I've met so many cool people through the overview effect and through other places. Um, I was with Explore Mars for a little while, which is a NASA funded nonprofit. Um, NASA's budget is dependent on Congress. Um, it's dependent on all sorts of different factors that are mostly political. You know, they're not, that's why it's great that NASA can partner with somebody like Blue Origin, which is Blue Origin is gonna be creating the lunar lander for when we return to the moon. But we haven't been back to the moon in 50 years. And I don't think that people realize we're going back <laughs> and how much money it costs to do that. And I think now that we're putting more satellites and more um, companies are working towards putting space stations and other kinds of apparatus in low Earth orbit. Um, yeah, those things need to be funded. And I think that we have to play the game with capitalism. But I also think that if you do that, you should have part of your business that is going to be going towards those big picture 
concerns, you know, people who are climate scientists and, you know, satellites can really help with climate science. And I worked with um, the Jane Goodall Institute in 2020 and 2021, just doing some content for them. And I had met their um, communications director, Sean Sweeney, through um, Kate hosted Cocktails with Kate during the pandemic. Um, we had 10, uh, 10 consecutive weeks where every week we chose um, a group of people. Kate picked out the winners. You know, I I I would call them down from. A, we had an inbox where people could respond to the. And she didn't want it to cost anything. She wanted it to be something during the pandemic that we could, um, that we could kind of do to get to keep people uh, to keep people interacting. And um, she wanted. She said, "I want to talk to epidemiologists. I want to talk to all kinds of scientists. I want to talk to people doing good work in the social sciences." And um, we talked to a group of kids, which was amazing. We talked to um, a group of kids who were all like eighteen and nineteen years old and had had to have. Um, uh, like Zoom prom and like all, all these things that you kind of with being a teenager and graduating that they just had to do online. And um, I met Sean through through one of those. He was uh, one of the people that Kate had picked to, to be part of the call. And I did a bunch of um, content for them. And I found out some of the ways that satellites uh, have helped Jane Goodall and have helped her institute um, measure deforestation. Um, you know, the, 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 a lot of the disciplines in science don't talk to each other. Like they think, oh, you work with animals. Oh, I work with technology. Those two things are not related, but they are like everything is in an ecosystem. And I think that being able to say like, you know, I use this satellite data to tell a government to, hey, you're deforesting this chimp habitat. You're deforesting, you know, all of these things. We're going to be losing one of our most precious natural resources. And, you know, in, in terms of, you know, biodiversity and and all of the things that the rainforest uh, provides to to an ecosystem that they're able to then say, you know, here's the way technology is helping us. So I think that's that's solving a big picture item with something like satellite technology that I had not even really thought about that before. And it was awesome to to get to talk to those subject matter experts and talk to wildlife photographers. And I spec spoke with this amazing woman, um, Dr. Rebecca Atencia. She'd performed the first chimp to chimp blood transfusion. She'd like performed the first chimp uh, uh, like heart surgery. And she's just, I mean, the incredible people that are out there Indeed. doing work, they are, I mean, you just read their resume and you're like, do you sleep? <laughs> like, like, and she speaks like eight languages and just, just a true global citizen where she talks to, she talks to governments about poaching and, and all of the things that, that are concerning for habitat loss and for, um, you know, species, uh, uh, species um, extinction and things like that. So it was just, I've met such an amazing group of people and I was like, we need to harness these people and bring them together. And maybe we can do that through Star Trek because everybody knows, if, if everyone's listening, you can't see me, but I'm pulling up the Spock hand, putting up the live long and prosper. Like everybody knows that that is an emoji. It's like the only uh, media property that has an emoji attached to it. Like it's kind of cool, the power of it, honestly. And I, and I love it. I love working with it and I love making it part of the, the messaging that I'm doing. It really is. I have several jackets with the Star Trek symbol on them. And when I wear them out, I would say almost every single time somebody will flash me that hand sign. And I know they have no idea what it means other than it's connected to the symbol on my shirt, but they <laughs> know that. Yeah, I went to, um, so I did the Space Force conference in December. Um, it was the inaugural Space Force event. They've only been in existence for four years. Um, and this was their first uh, in-person conference. And I wore a different Star Trek badge every day. 
So I was uh, like a four day, four day event um, where I started on, I started out on the Sunday I was, I was there and we, we went through Wednesday and I wore a different badge every day and everybody was like, what's your badge from? Where can I get one? I was like, I think, I think fan sets made a lot of sales that week. <laughs> Cause I was just sending like general, I had generals like pulling out their phone. Like here I am dressed as Captain Picard and my wife is Dr. Crusher. <laughs> like, it, was, it was great because it's a, just a, a touch point for everybody. And I mean, these are people who are making major decisions about national security and um, decisions about, you know, what our satellites are up to and, and keeping an eye on everything down here. And I think it's very, uh, it was a very cool event and we really, I'm really proud of what we pulled off. Our team was small, but um, really mighty and uh, working with the, all of the the players in private aerospace that spoke as well. You know, the, we've got these four-star generals, but we wanted to pair them with, um, you know, the the big players like Sierra Space and Blue Origin. And um, we had some really cool smaller companies there too that were represented. Uh, Muon Space and Terran Orbital. Terran Orbital trades on the New York Stock Exchange as LLAP. The, nice. Their CEO, um, he is a huge Trekkie. So if you look up Mark Bell, Star Trek, um, he had a, his movie screening room was like a replica of the Enterprise D bridge. So I'm like, if I, if I have that kind of money, hell yes, I would put the Enterprise D bridge as my movie screening room. <laughs> I have said, if I have the, I'm not going to, you know, throw out numbers or names but if i had a lot of money i would build a full-size replica of deep space nine Ooh. and basically turn it into a, like a little resort oh that, yes you know. i would come I'm, oh, yeah. I'm actually very sad that i never got the chance to go to the star trek experience it kind of closed before i started going to cons and had my had my own money and was able to do that but i stayed in the hilton for ces last year and you there's i walked in and i was like looking at the gift shop and i was like that looks like the promenade and it did it had the it had the round doorway and I was like oh and that you could sort of kind of peek down into where it used to be but it was kind of closed off to access I was sad <laughs> I I was there the last year it was still open and it, it was very impressive uh Armin Shimmerman had said that if you squinted you could kind of believe you were on the set it looked from somebody who's actually on the set he said it did look that good Oh man, Armin's great. And I love that he teaches Shakespeare. And I think, um, so what, one of the first panels I ever did at Star Trek Las Vegas was a literature and Star Trek panel. Um, I have my master's in literature and the, all the numerous Star Trek or not Star Trek, sorry, Shakespeare, Alice in Wonderland, um, Robin Hood, like all of these classic tales are still so prevalent in the Star Trek lore. And I love mm -hmm. that. So they, they they have so many references. I, I could do one on just children's literature references with like Peter Pan, where he's like second star to the right, straight on till morning. Like it just the quotes that they that they it makes it very classic and kind of timeless. I personally I mean I love the idea that Trip Tucker is a big Superman fan. Oh, that's Enterprise. I apologize. My my knowledge base does not extend to Enterprise. <laughs> that's all right. That's quite all right. I just, I for me, it strikes because it's like, I realize that as time goes on, more and more of the stories that were, are just being written now are going to be looked at someday. Like, you know, we look at Grimm's fairy tales or Shakespeare or Greek myths. It's just going to become yes. part of our mindset. Oh, I love the Greek myth references. I just watched um, Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Oh. Uh -huh. Um, Bear McCreary does the music and I, I love his music and I try to support his projects. Um, I'm a big fan of his since Battlestar Galactica. And of course he's doing the new Lord of the Rings series, which I love. 
Um, but yeah, Percy Jackson and all of the um, references to the Greek myth. And I mean, we st I studied Greek myth extensively in high school. My my high school English teacher was a total badass. She inspired me to to study more and to, to be an English major, really. And she was the one who put me on that path. And um, storytelling as our collective consciousness is so interesting to me. And especially now when you look at the canon and you think, okay, why are these white men included in the literary canon and where are the women and where are the diverse voices? You know, where are the people who would have had to have written under a pen name or, uh, you know, when they like to say like Frederick, Frederick Douglass and the slave narrative is kind of one of the first ones that we are aware of in America. But I'm sure that there were other people who were writing or could have had that kind of opportunity if it was if it was available to people of color and, you know, taking women in literature classes and and minoring. I minored in women's studies, which is now gender studies um, in college and uh, really kind of examining like, what, well, why are these stories our collective consciousness? You know, like, why does Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland and, um, you know, Gilgamesh, like all of the, you know, like the Iliad, the Odyssey, like going all the way back. It's like, well, the first, one of the first things you study in literature is Beowulf. And, you know, these stories were like handed down orally before someone wrote them down. And you kind of examine the like, feminine aspects of them and like see like well what are they pulling out like what did they think was important enough to include um and then there's of course so many different things of you know women like like if anyone who's watched little women you know you know that joe march you know she she had to write under a pen name that kind of thing uh so i, I find it interesting about whose story gets told and it's like that hamilton right who uh, who lives who dies who tells your story mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's that's that's very fascinating to me and i think I love that Star Trek stories are becoming more diverse. That's very important to me. I have to give a shout out to a previous guest by the name of Rod Faulkner, who runs a podcast called Seventh Matrix. Okay. Uh, and he is specializes in looking at people of color and marginalized communities and boosting up their stories within sci-fi. And he and I got into this really great discussion on exactly that. It's like, okay, why do we go for this certain set of stories which are great and they're rightfully classics but it's like what about the mythology of africa asia the middle east the, the places that we don't really hear from that often where are those stories and they they are there we did the research we found them but it's just hard to get that out into the conversation yeah and i think there's been so many scholars who have made great strides in the american uh, academic institutions and trying to really include those voices you know some of the first women that i was clued into and i think this was really only just starting when i graduated high school in 2002 so it was really only just starting um god that feels so long ago <laughs> to say that <laughs> um but it really was only starting to just diversify and we were starting to say like well instead of it just being a specialized class for women in literature we need to include more voices in the canon that are that are female um, and instead of it's just African American studies, no, we need to we need to include uh, people from from all backgrounds in our in our canon that that are that is taught widely in schools. And I think I don't have a kid yet, but when I do, I think I'm going to be that mom who's like, "Why are we reading this? Why are we not reading this other thing?" <laughs> so I'm sure it'll be a conversation at the PTA or whatever. But I'm I'm hoping that we can all make it more inclusive, make it a Jedi space, right? Indeed, indeed. <laughs> And I, I love the conversation. I never want to take a book out of a kid's hands. That's, that's one sticking point with me. It's like, if you want to read Gilgamesh, you go ahead and do it, please, please. But it's like, 
But there, if there's three other books here that you should read too, let's go ahead and put those in your hands. That's the next thing you should pick up here. I, I love broadening yeah. the conversation. And I love that reading is now, you know, reading fantasy and YA lit, you know, young adult lit um, has become a much bigger industry than it was when I was younger. Uh, there's so many, I think, you know, with the advent of kind of like, and I know that it was started out with like Twilight and things like that, which, you know, I'm not a big fan of Twilight, the, the, the ladies in that are not super feminist, <laughs> but, uh, but it got kids reading again, you know, and it got girls, mm -hmm. you know, even some of the love triangle, you know, it does it doesn't matter what it was, you know, and I'm, I'm loath to bring up the author of Harry Potter because I think she is absolutely terrible person now, but the phenomenon of that was, was active and happening when I was a teenager and I was reading and having kids going to midnight book release parties is something that did not happen before that. So um, I'm, I'm glad that kids started to get reading and got into fantasy and sci-fi. And I think it's helped legitimize the genre too, because you know, we just had the Saturn Awards. We had to have the Saturn Awards because the Emmys and the Golden Globes don't honor science fiction. It's like a great sadness to me that Mary McDonald does not have an Emmy for being President Laura Roslin on Battlestar Galactica. Like Edward James Olmos, he should also have an Emmy. Like <laughs> they were incredible on that show. And that show was like prestige TV before that even existed. And that was Ron Moore. And Ron Moore started out on, um, on Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. And uh, now he's, then he went to For All Mankind. And if I, if your readers are not watching or not watching For All Mankind, I said readers, I guess listeners. <laughs> if your listeners are not watching For All Mankind, that's like my gospel right now. You have to watch For All Mankind, you guys. It's the best. It's it's an alternative history. It's like, what if the space race never ended? What if Russia got to the moon first? Yeah, it, it's funny. And it's I don't think a lot of people really get that. It wasn't that long ago that young adult fiction was considered like where stories go to die. It's where you send stories because the thought was that it, the hardest group of people to get to read are males between the ages of like 13 and 20. That That is the demographic that just does not read. So anything that could get them to pick up a book was considered money to well spent. And a couple of years later, suddenly all the stories you mentioned, the Harry Potter, the Twilight, all this, the things that are huge money now. Per Percy Jackson, actually, too. Yes. I remember reading that when it came out. And they have like more of the uh, male protagonists and, and all that. I and mean, of course, we need to have great lady protagonists as well. But, um, you know, I understand why that they pick young boys to kind of head up these franchises. It's because they want to get young boys reading. And they succeeded. And I mean, now that the stories that are the you know young men and women are picking up are the ones that are they're making giant movies out of, which nobody would have seen that coming when we were kids. Yeah, I mean, comic books being going from being a very niche thing to being biggest Marvel franchise on the planet. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, that was not something that you know. I, it's funny because you know I think there's a group of us who got bullied for liking sci-fi and comics, and I was bullied a hundred percent. I kids making fun of me for liking star trek and x-files and and um i've actually had some people that i went to like you know middle school and high school with reach out and be like you are still living your best life you're a nerd good job and i'm like well <laughs> i've had a couple of those, i loved i've had just a few of those people reach out to me and say oh yeah that thing that we made fun of you for liking i just tried it last week and it's actually pretty cool I'm like, yeah right? i knew that 20 years ago what can i say geek shall inherit the earth <laughs> but speaking of that and I there's one thing I really wanted to ask you and I want to make sure I give you enough time in the episode to really flesh out because it's sure you know looking over all, all your work this is really interesting to me 
when I was into Trek in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was reading a lot of the, the books and the, the background information. And one of the things that they kind of weaved into the history was that eventually space exploration would get away from being like a product of NASA and would become something that was a, basically a partnership between the governments and private organization. And that's definitely the way things have gone. And when you figure that I was reading this in like the late 90s, What's your take on that? And I don't want to ask if you think this is a good thing, because that's way too broad of a question. I but do I want... think it's a good thing. And okay. I'm totally willing to say that it's a good thing. I think okay. we need we need both. We need everybody. Um, I think the ultimate part about space and Star Trek is it's smart people working together to solve big problems. It doesn't really matter who they work for. You know, it's it just matters that they can cooperate. And mentioning for all mankind i think it's the most perfect example of that because in season three this is not a spoiler season three is them getting to mars and i worked for an organization called explore mars and they would like to see boots on the ground in mars by the end of the 2030s and i don't know if that's possible we don't know space travel deep space travel like that has never been attempted i think we'll get there eventually for sure i don't know if it's going to happen in the next 16 years, but we'll see. Um, we are progressing at quite an exponential rate. Um, and like I, I had mentioned um, with SpaceX, I mean, they have landed rocket, they have they have reused rockets in a way that NASA has not done. And I know that NASA has been criticized for Artemis um, and for the, the space launch system that is not reusable. It's not as eco-friendly, you know, they're burning a lot of rocket fuel. They're using a lot of, uh, they're using a lot of resources and money to just send something up one time. And I think it's important that the private innovation is pushing the public innovation to be more sustainable, to think about that stuff when they design things. And it's so complicated that I feel almost inadequately able to comment on it. But I think it's a good thing that private and public aerospace are working together because like Axiom, if you're familiar with any of the Axiom missions, um, they are sending people back and forth to the ISS. They're conducting all of the same kind of experiments in orbit. Um, they are diversifying their crew. And I've, it's also been, um, if you look at the crews that have gone up for private aerospace, they are more diverse. More women, more people of color are getting a chance to go up because NASA is very um, difficult to get into. It's just a, you know, it's a rigorous program. And, and it used to be that fighter pilots were the ideal candidates because they're used to the G-forces, they're, they're, they're familiar with flying and they're familiar with these dangerous circumstances. But we have sent up so many different kinds of people now, um, you know, back through the, the space shuttle program. And again, now that we're sending people up for the, the Artemis missions. So crewed spacecraft is uh, evolving and changing, you know, year, year to year, month, month to month almost. I think we're living in a really cool, exciting time for that to be happening too. It's like we're witnessing that unfolding. And in season three of For All Mankind, it's a three-way race to Mars between the US, Russia, and a private company called Helios. And what do you know? Stuff breaks. <laughs> People get in trouble. They have to all work together to get to Mars. They have to all work together to survive. And the part that I love about it is, and this is for Star Trek, this is for any sci-fi show, space does not care what color you are, who you love, what country, what flag you fly. 
space is going to kill you <laughs> and you need it's it's you against that element right so when you watch something like apollo 13 and you get that that feeling in you of like this is so inspiring this is so exciting um that's 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 a human experience that's not a it's a human being experience in the world it's not like a a white man experience. It's not a, 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 you know, a lesbian woman experience. It's not a black person experience. It's a human experience. And I think that that's the, the best part about the combination of the combination of private and public uh, companies in aerospace working together. I think that's the coolest part. I'm just a lay person. I feel inadequate to throw this out there, but when I hear these things, when I, when I originally read that ages and ages ago, and when I'm talking to you now, all I can think of is that these problems we're dealing with are so big. Space travel is so expensive. The resources are so great that the only way we have even a shot is to collaborate and not compete. Competing is just going to burn. We're going to reproduce too many efforts and we're not going to really get anywhere. Collaboration seems to make the most sense. It does. But we also have to recognize that. And, you know, I learned this a little bit working with the Space Force is other countries might not want to work with us. Some of the wealthiest countries countries don't really are not considered allies right other countries with more robust space programs they are putting their own money into that and they're not funding it's not going to be american interest and there's this whole aspect of you know patriotism and and loyalty and you know you have to be aware that as a society we haven't reached that ideal yet like we'd all love to be at starfleet right we'd all mm -hmm. love to we'd all love to be under president Stacey Abrams of United earth, <laughs> like on discovery, which was fabulous. Um, and I love that they chose her because she is really exemplifies. I think the ideals of, of Starfleet and it's people like that. But I mean, if you look at Stacey, look at better work, like these are people who lost their elections. Like these are people that are inspiring, but they're not necessarily people who are the majority of the country are voting for. And I think we have to solve a lot of those social issues that we're facing before we can like, I, I always think that if we discovered alien life, it might unite us as like humans. Of course, we'd probably shoot at it, <laughs> but I would hope that we would maybe be our better selves. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's that ideal, right? Like you're like, well, what could happen? What will happen? We don't know, but I hope we can get there together and not as enemies. I hope so too. And I think that's probably the best place to leave it. Amy, thank you so much for being here. I'd be glad to have you back anytime. Where are the best places people can follow you on the internet? Uh, people can find, I am still on Twitter. I guess I'm going to be on there until they shut the lights out. <laughs> it's um, it's Amy Imhoff um, 1701, like the call number of the enterprise. Um, that is also my uh, handle on everywhere else, Instagram, Blue Sky, um, you can also find me on LinkedIn if you're a professional and you want to connect and, and talk about marketing and space and branding and all that great stuff. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn for sure. And uh, where else can you find? I think that's everywhere. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of things happening right now, but that's uh, those are the primary places. I will tweet or post about it if I'm doing something. Everything I'm going to um, everything we just talked about, I'm going to put in the show notes on my website, AaronBossy.com. Amy, thanks so much for being here. I hope you have a great night. Great. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. I would like to thank Amy for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. 
I like to talk about how Hungry Trilobite is that space where fiction and reality intersect. And there's no place that's more real and visible than science. Because science is one of those cases where we can see how the broad ideas that we see in science fiction get played out in the real world, sometimes in very specific terms and sometimes just conceptually. Amy is one of the many guests I've had on the show who have looked at those ideas. And if you have somebody in mind that you follow on social media, send them in my direction. You can reach out to me on social media at Aaron Bossig. That's on Instagram, Twitter, or Blue Sky. Or if you want to write to me, you could do so at bossigpodcasts at yahoo.com. Please subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.